BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome back to our program and our guest for the day, Wendell Potter. He's the president of the Center for Health and Democracy, the president of Business Leaders for Healthcare Transformation, the founder of Tarbell, and uh, the author of Deadly Spin and Nation on the Take, two brilliant books you need to read. Wendell Potter is his uh, W-E-N-D-E-L-L-P-O-T-T-E-R is his Twitter handle or uh, a business M4A or M4A underscore now. And Wendell, welcome back to the program. Tell me the story of Jill Eicher and Ron Tanner. Thank you, Tom. Uh, I learned about uh, Jill and Ron just by going to GoFundMe and typing in the term um, high deductible and then Cigna, and I saw a whole bunch of people who have Cigna health insurance. Now, if I could interrupt you right there, you used to work for Cigna. I did. I worked for Cigna for 15 years, and I left after a crisis of conscience, and partly because of what I knew was ultimately going to happen with people in high deductible plans. I left soon after Cigna and other big insurers began pushing as many of us as possible who have private insurance into high deductible plans. And I knew then that we would reach the point in which thousands, millions of Americans have insurance, but they're functionally uninsured because of these high deductibles. And those people include Jill and and Ron, who um, had almost a storybook life until fairly recently. They uh, uh, got married fairly late in their lives. They bought a uh, an old condemned townhouse uh, in Baltimore, fixed it up, made a uh, to such grandeur that even this old house featured it on their TV show. And uh, they bought a, uh, uh, their dream house in the country. Uh, just around the time after they did that, uh, Jill was diagnosed with breast cancer. And even though they have health insurance, uh, they have so many bills coming in because of her high deductibles that uh, they had to turn to GoFundMe to beg for money to be able to help cover Jill's uh, medical expenses and their living expenses. Which is insane. I mean, you know, that's the whole point of insurance is that you don't have to worry. And, and, and millions of Americans have a false sense of security right now because they think if they get sick, they're protected and they haven't read the fine print in their policies and they don't know what's going on. Um, how widespread are these high? First of all, let's just explain the term high deductible. What, you know, what, what does it mean if you have a high deductible policy and how do you find out if you do? 
Well, uh, chances are very good that you do because the industry, as I noted, was uh, determined to move every last one of us as, as quickly as possible out of our HMOs and PPOs, which were the managed care plans that were prevalent in the 90s and early 2000s, into similar plans, but plans that also make you pay quite a lot of money out of your own pockets before your coverage kicks in. Uh, and uh, that includes you have to pay out of your own pocket often for medications that your doctor says you need or to even go to the hospital or the doctor's office. So as a consequence, many people, like you said, they think they're adequately insured until they get sick, until they need to go to the drugstore to pick up their, their medications and find out that even with insurance, they have to pay hundreds, if not thousands of dollars right out of the gate. Uh, to get the coverage that they need. And that's what uh, uh, Jill Eicher, uh, was is facing. Uh, their policy renews at the beginning of every J uh, July, and she has to spend eight to $10,000 during those first several weeks just to cover her medications that she needs to stay alive. These, eight to ten thousand. These being the high deductible policies. Are we yeah. seeing, by the way, if I, if I could just uh, go off topic just a little bit here, um, are we seeing the same kind of scam begin to be run with Medicare Advantage uh, programs, yes. these, these privatized things that pretend that they're Medicare? I, I, to this morning, Joe Namath was on TV again going, you need to get all the benefits you can from Medicare Part C. You're losing out. And I could just imagine all over America there are people going, oh, Medicare Part C, it sounds like, oh, Medicare Advantage, that sounds pretty good. Is, exactly. Is this happening with Medicare Advantage plans too, these high deductibles? It absolutely is. People are being uh, lured into these plans by Joe Namath and others, and who knows how much he's being paid. In fact, I need to write something about that to investigate Amen. that. Uh, but uh, yeah, people uh, don't realize, they never hear from Joe Namath of what the downsides of these plans are. Uh, these, these are just exactly like uh, uh, private plans. They have all the bad aspects of a private plan. You have high deductibles, you have a limited network of health care providers, and you have uh, uh, to, to know that you're subjected to the possibility of prior authorization, which means that whatever your doctor recommends and prescribes for you, uh, that your insurance company may say no. That's what prior authorization is all about. Your doctor has to get approval in advance before treating you like he or she thinks you should be treated. They never, have you ever heard Joe Namath say that? I no. don't think so. No. Uh, but people are being uh, lured into these uh, plans. In fact, United Healthcare is the biggest player in, in, in uh, uh, Medicare Advantage, but so is Cigna, so is Aetna, so is Humana in particular. Uh, but uh, they make money hand over fist. 71% of United's first quarter earnings or revenue came from Uncle Sam, uh, largely because of their uh, luring so many people into their Medicare Advantage plans. 100% uh, actually of United's medic uh, enrollment growth over the past 10 years, Tom, 100% has been in Medicare Advantage and Medicaid. They, ha they have actually lost 35,000 uh, commercial members over the past 10 years. Wow. How did, how did an insurance company get involved in Medicaid? Well, because the states uh, fell victim to the industry's propaganda campaigns saying that uh, you know, people like uh, like I used to be, or my counterparts would go to state officials and say, "Look, uh, if you contract with us, 
we, we being a private insurance company, we can save you money on your Medicaid program. And uh, there are a lot of gullible folks in this country. A lot of them are in, in uh, working for state governments. And they said, okay, we'll give it a shot. So what has happened is that the majority of Medicaid programs, which are administered at the state level, are now managed by big private insurance companies like Anthem, Blue Cross, uh, which is a very big player, uh, a company you've probably never heard of called Centene, uh, manages a lot of states' Medicaid programs. So does United. Uh, they're making money uh, by the bucket loads uh, off, of, uh, off of, of, of state governments. So our tax dollars are going into these health insurance companies in ways that most people don't know. We're supporting them. We're make, we are financing their profits. Right. through the Medicare program and the Medicaid program. That's amazing. That's absolutely amazing. So, who, you know, you're the president of the Center for Health and Democracy and Business Leaders for Healthcare Transformation, and you've got, you know, a wonderful website over at tarbell.org, right? Who's doing what? I mean, you know, are, are there any politicians out there who are fighting the good fight? Is anybody trying to push back on this? I know that these companies have mind-boggling amounts of money. I mean, we're talking billions and billions of dollars Buying off a politician with a half a million dollars or a million dollars, you know, seems like chump change. Is there a strong pushback in the United States among politicians? And if so, where and who? It's beginning. And I, I would say it's beginning. Well, all modesty aside, I've been encouraging politicians to uh, do something in particular about the overpayments to Medicare Advantage plans. And to her credit, Congresswoman Katie Porter last week, uh, along with uh, a number of other members of Congress in both the House and the Senate, sent a letter to the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services uh, asking for a review uh, and reconsideration of uh, uh, CMS's planned rate increase or, or pay raise, if you will, for private insurance companies. CMS uh, a few weeks ago said that they would be uh, giving health plans, private health plans, an 8.5% 8 8 raise uh, during this year. So uh, Congresswoman Porter, who is no fan of health insurance companies, took it on herself to uh, uh, begin drafting a letter and got several members of Congress uh, fired up to join her. And they include on the Senate side, you've got uh, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, but also Cory Booker and, uh, and some other members of Congress uh, of the Senate. And you've got uh, on the House side, you've got Congresswoman Jayapal from Washington State, um, Debbie Dingell, uh, many, uh, uh, Rosa DeLauro, uh, who's chair of the uh, Appropriations Committee, Jan Joukowsky, who is on the uh, Energy and Commerce Committee. So you've got some people who've got some real clout, uh, right. finally, beginning right. to pay attention. But it's going to take more than just writing letters. I mean, this is going to take, take legislation, ultimately. Yeah. yeah. Wendell Potter. So if people want, uh, just very quickly, Wendell, if people want to learn more about this, they want to sign up, they want to become activists around health insurance policies, what do they do? Well, reach out to me, uh, certainly uh, through Tarbell, through uh, my website. Check us out at loopcoalition.org, which in particular is fighting against high deductibles. That's loopcoalition.org. You can sign up for more information there. How do you spell that? Loop, L-O-O-P, coalition. Loop stands for lower out-of-pockets. Uh, so it's uh, ah. uh, a coalition that I formed with over 50 organizations, Tom, uh, to push back against uh, high deductibles. It's Loop now. And again, the website is loopcoalition.org. Very good. Wendell Potter, one of the genuine good guys out there. Wendell, thank you so much for the great work that you're doing and for coming on our thank program you. today. 
Thanks so much, Tom. Yeah, keep it up. Keep it up. Wendell Potter, a national treasure. We will be back with more of the news of the day and your calls right after this. This is the first peer-reviewed study, large-scale study, that has been published in a peer-reviewed medical journal. This was in the New England Journal of Medicine. It's a clinical trial that began way back in 2000, two years ago, or a year and a half ago. And they were looking at patients in Brazil. And this was a genuine, randomized, double-blind study. In other words, the, the doctors were given pills, and they didn't know if they were ivermectin or if they were sugar pills. And the doctors then gave the pills to patients, and the patients didn't know if it was ivermectin or sugar pills. So that's called double-blind. They're both blind, the doctors and the patients. No placebo effect. Nobody's going to, you know, none of this doctors expecting people to get well because they know that they None of that. And they did this with just a whole bunch of people. And what they found is pretty straightforward. This was, by the way, this was mentioned. This was the, the data from this study was first released by the National Institutes of Health way back last August. But then, you know, it takes six months or so to peer review data. So they had to go through the whole process of having, having uh, other scientists look at the data of these scientists and make sure that it was all hunky-dory. And sure enough, two things they found. It was A, when they gave people ivermectin, it did not alter the course of the disease. It did not change how, what, you know, the frequency with which people died or ended up in the hospital. It had no effect, no discernible effect. But... If they got the ivermectin within three days of diagnosis of a positive test, they were more likely to have a worse outcome than the people who got the sugar pills. In other words, ivermectin made things worse for people who got it early. Probably because, you know, it's an anti-parasitic. Parasites are typically multicellular, you know, organisms. They're little animals that live inside us. And so ivermectin is basically, you know, a pesticide. It's an animal killer. Well, guess what? We're animals too. Uh, G. Saul in Seattle, Washington. Is that G a typo or is your name G. Saul? No, it should just be Saul. Okay. Hey, so, so it's a typo. So what's up? <laughs> I just wanted to call. Uh, I work with a lot of younger folks at my job. And I was working with some framing and trying to, like, pose an idea. And I came to the conclusion that it's not really war versus peace, the idea really should be contrasting peace versus profit. Explain. Well, when we're thinking about it, one of the most common things we always hear is that one of the most profited things is off of tragedy, off of war, and talking to these youngins, they see that really what's behind it is the drive for greed, and one of them just happened to say one day that when they look at it, the ultimate way to get to, like, a peaceful world is by not having profits drive everything. And mm -hmm. war would be an effect of going after profits. There, there have certainly been wars in the past that were efforts to get profits. But I would say that, you know, like the Mexican-American War, basically a land grab on the part of President Polk. In fact, Abraham Lincoln called him out on it and, and said that the war, he had lied us into that war. And I think you could argue that Russia wanted to take all of Ukraine because Ukraine has huge untapped natural resources. Plus, they're the breadbasket of Europe. It's literally the physically largest country in Europe. It's larger than Texas. You know, so, hey, let's grab those resources. Let's get that great soil. Let's, and, and, and apparently there's a massive amount of natural gas under the ground in Ukraine, too, if they were to start fracking for it. 
you could put it in the profit frame when you look at the oligarchs running the country. So I'm not disagreeing with you. Saul, thank you very much for that. Quick math, the less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Just head over to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Are you going to get the fourth booster or the fourth shot, the second booster? What do you think about that? Are your friends and family, neighbors? What are you hearing from your community? Are people like, ah, I'm over it, or are they still concerned? Number one. Number two, do you think that Joe Biden and the Democrats in the House of Representatives and the Senate are actually going to pass a tax increase on the wealthiest Americans? I'm kind of skeptical that this is going to make it through, but if it does, I will be both astonished and my optimism for the future of our country will go up significantly more than significantly. But, you know, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. The other thing I wanted to flag for you is this fascinating study that came out of the Brookings Institution. Nobody's talking about this, right? There's all this thing of the, the great resignation, all the stories about people are resigning from work and they're not coming back and there's this labor shortage and it's all, you know, the Republicans have put it all in the frame of, and this is because Democrats extended unemployment insurance and gave people child tax credits of $300 a month. And it's because they, they gave unemployed people an extra $300 a month. And you know, they've got all these BS excuses. And it turns out when you actually do a scientific analysis, none of them hold up. But the Republicans are still holding on to this. So, which raises the question, where did the employee shortage come from? Why is it that the labor market is so tight that we have the lowest unemployment rate since the 1960s when the economy was booming. Why? Well, part of it is that the economy is booming. But Brookings says another part of it is that 15% of these unfilled jobs are unfilled because people have long COVID. And nobody is talking about it. Long COVID, you know, I see there was an article in the, New, in, the, in the New York Times about long COVID last week. I shared it with you on the air because it was so exceptional that they actually did an article about it. I think long COVID is one of the biggest stories in America right now. 
There are hundreds of thousands of people who are experiencing disability. They're experiencing brain fog. They're experiencing fatigue. They're experiencing pain in their joints. They're experiencing massive insomnia, all of which is wrecking their ability to hold a job. And in many cases, you know, because this is not being recognized, they're not getting uh, unemployment insurance or disability compensation. They're applying to Social Security, but because Republican, two Republican administrations, the Bush administration and the Trump administration, gutted, I mean, literally cut in half the number of employees in the Social Security administration, it can take two years for your application to get processed. And during those two years, you're disabled with long COVID, you can't work, and you've got no income. They point out that uh, over 100 million Americans of working age between 18 and 64 have contracted COVID in the past two years, 100 million. And this, I'm reading from the Brookings Institution study. You can find it over at brookings.edu. They, they note that 27 to 33% of COVID patients still experience symptoms months after infection. This means 31 million working age Americans, more than one in seven, may be experiencing lingering COVID symptoms. In other words, long COVID. And what does this do to our workforce? Well, you know, when 30 million people can't work of working age and they were in the workforce, you might think that would have an impact. I think, frankly, the Biden administration should be be talking about this more. I think there should be a, a, a special task force on long COVID. I think Congress should, should convene hearings on it because I think that we need legislation that, that kind of fast tracks people who have long COVID into, at the very least, Social Security disability insurance. It's crazy. It's absolutely crazy. J. David McSwain. He's the author of a new book, Pandemic Inc., Chasing the Capitalists and Thieves Who Got Rich While We Got Sick. He's also an investigative reporter with ProPublica's D.C. office. We frequently feature their work here on this program. They just do such extraordinary great, great work. Uh, DavidMcSwain.com is his website and his Twitter handle. Uh, David, welcome to the program. Uh, what, what got you started on this book? Uh, thanks for having me. Uh, well, I got started reporting really in the early months of the pandemic as we realized the Trump administration was woefully ill-prepared and hospitals didn't have the supplies they needed. I was here in D.C. watching the outflows of just hundreds of millions of dollars and eventually billions to source these supplies. We had something like 1% of what we needed in the national strategic stockpile. So we just saw contracts flying all over the place to unknown companies and companies that we could tell had just been created and pretty big deals, including you know, $34.5 million deal uh, given to a person who'd never had a federal contract to supply to the Veterans Administration, which is the, uh, you know, which oversees the largest hospital network in the country. And from there, uh, it sort of set off a year and a half of just really wacky reporting following how the federal government was being taken for a ride and taxpayers were being screwed. 
it seems that uh, if you you know had a hundred bucks to start a, a, a new co a new company uh, you know to, to file your incorporations paper incorporation papers with the state and you had a friend like Peter Navarro or Jared Kushner you could make millions of dollars basically on BS I mean on, on nothing and and not be held to account is that a, is that am I exaggerating uh, no, those are sort of two separate issues. So one of the first contractors I noticed was a company called Airboss of America, ultimately Canadian owned. And as I was just sort of combing through what is usually kind of boring contracts and purchasing data, noticed an entry in there that said, you know, this deal, something like $90 million for, you know, the sort of like hazmat respirators that you saw Dustin Hoffman wear in an outbreak. Uh, was ordered by the White House, which you just don't see. And that's when we got a sense that political appointees, somebody in the White House was steering contracts, which you can't have for obvious reasons. And we got that story out. And as we dug in deeper, it seemed there were sort of two tracks. There was a connection to the Trump White House, which was fantastic. And you could get a deal and Peter Navarro and others would would push for that. But you could also just be a no-name company. You could file for an LLC on Monday and have a $10 million contract with FEMA by Wednesday or Thursday, because we were that desperate and pretty much all vetting had been thrown out the window. At the time, you know, the federal government denied that, but the evidence was just mounting. My recollection is that uh, Trump had put Jared Kushner in charge of a, a little group of people who were, uh, you know, apparently a lot of them were like uh, friends of his from college, uh, you know, or something like that. I mean, these are, you know, young people in their 20s and early 30s who who uh, were organizing this stuff on spreadsheets. And, and uh, it was just it was a cluster. I mean, it was a mess. Um, am I remembering that right? Yeah, it was total madness. I, I detail this in the book. They, they came to be known by the uh, Navy admiral who was actually in charge of supply chain logistics as the Kushner kids because uh, he shows up to work. He'd been pulled over from the Pentagon. Uh, to FEMA, he shows up to work and he sees all these young people who don't really know where they're going and realizes there's a bunch of civilians who've been inserted into the national pandemic response. And what had happened was there was the official task force, which was headed up by Vice President Mike Pence, which in and of itself, you know, some people balked because you're supposed to have an emergency manager, emergency management expert, not a politician in charge of these things. But that was the official task force. And then Jared Kushner on his own, using his network of well-to-do uh, folks and his private cell phone, organized his own sort of shadow task force. And, and it really overshadowed the larger effort, clumsy as it was, but you know, legitimate and serious government workers trying to source things because they were referring you know, contractors to the state of New York, for instance, and in one case, ventilators, this guy said, I can deliver, you know, hundred, hundreds of ventilators. And he got a major contract and he never had access to ventilators. So you just had people who didn't know what they were doing, kind of overshadowing the effort to catch up. Did he keep the money? Uh, he, in that instance, he was actually paid up front, which most of the time, the federal government, at least, while well, states and cities would, the federal government wouldn't pay up front, but he was paid up front, and they are currently suing to claw back some of that money 
Uh, I haven't looked at the case file in a little while, but right. yeah, they, they had to try to claw that back. Jared, Jared Kushner's dad went to prison for being a professional grifter. Uh, uh, I mean, uh, Trump, uh, Kushner just got a, what looks to, to a lot of people like a $2 billion payoff from the Saudi government for, you know, uh, covering up or helping cover up uh, or at least not reacting to the murder of Jamal Khashoggi and, uh, you know, for pipelining a bunch of military weaponry that Congress tried to stop from the United States into Saudi Arabia for their war on Yemen. Is there evidence that Kushner was corruptly, you know, with corrupt intent, trying to game this system? You know, we may yet find out more details to that effect. In my reporting, I, I found that a lot of it was innuendo. I mean, you got to remember a lot of the contractors who came out of the woodwork didn't even have things to provide. and. You know, inserting Kushner, who, you know, as you mentioned, is really kind of a, you know, backdoor deal, working in the shadows kind of guy, just really added to the suspicion that something was up here. I mean, I will say that pre-pandemic, you know, selling masks is not the best business model. It's, it's pretty hard to do. There's not a lot of demand. That's part of why we were so reliant on China. Uh, so there were a few companies that were poised to really get big deals, such as the one I mentioned earlier, uh, Airbus of America, because they, they were in the industry and they had a legitimate product that they could sell. But we're really talking about just thousands of random companies coming out of the woodwork and suddenly being dubbed, you know, major contractors. How much did we lose, we, the federal government, how, how much did we lose to fraud and theft and BS artists when the Trump administration had this stumble bum response to this COVID pandemic? I wish I could give you a figure. I detail several anecdotes in the book, but this was so widespread. It, you know, you have that initial gush of money to try to source supplies, get ahead of it, protect healthcare workers. There was a lot lost in there. There was a lot of price gouging. That's really hard to quantify to really establish the scope. And then you have the Paycheck Protection Program, about $800 billion in, in small business loans, many of them forgivable. And this, you know, that program was just a bonanza for fraud because people could just easily lie, you know, stick a couple numbers on, on their paperwork and walk away with millions the next week. Law enforcement and prosecutors are gonna be catching up to this for a long time. And that's part of why President Biden in his recent State of the Union address mentioned the creation of a special prosecutor for pandemic fraud. It is a profound mess that, you know, we're going to be grappling with for a long time. Yeah, it seems like uh, Democrats are always brought in to clean up the messes the Republicans leave behind. Uh, it's it's pretty breathtaking. We're talking with J. David McSwain. His book is Pandemic Inc., Chasing the Capitalists and Thieves Who Got Rich While We Got Sick. Um, David, uh, last, last question, essentially. Uh, what do we learn from this? Hey, I'm glad you asked that. The, the book, I, you know, in writing this, I was like everybody else enduring a pandemic and was very conscious that, you know, we're all tired. We'd love to move on. Uh, so my goal isn't to depress this further, but I, I really think this book is a blueprint of exactly what not to do. There are a few, few obvious things, such as make sure you fund the national, national strategic stockpile. Uh, make sure the president invokes the Defense Production Act early, uh, you know, from the political side, doesn't deny an inconvenient pandemic. Um, but the truth is, we're still in this. We're still learning lessons. The Biden administration 
really bet big on vaccines, uh, which is great, but didn't pay enough attention to testing. So, you know, we had the we had Omicron coming in earlier this year and late last year. You know, there's a lot we're still wrapping our heads around. Mm -hmm. But as far as, you know, the, the grift and the waste, I feel like we've, you know, this book really shows a sort of damning portrayal of how the government, including states, were taken for a ride and taxpayers got screwed. Amazing. J. David McSwain is the author of the book is Pandemic Inc., Chasing the Capitalists and Thieves Who Got Rich While We Got Sick. Uh, David, thanks so much for dropping by. It's great talking with you. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be Continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Dr. Anthony Fauci has just basically said, uh, the sky is blue, but maybe it's green or something like that. That's that's probably not the best uh, metaphor or analogy or whatever example. He came out, this was in in an interview with Judy Woodruff on PBS NewsHour, and he said, here we are, the end of April, Excuse me, this is Judy Woodruff. She said, here we are, the end of April, the spring of 2022. How close are we to the end of this pandemic? And Fauci said, we are certainly right now in this country out of the pandemic phase. He said, namely, we don't have 900,000 new infections a day and tens and tens and tens of thousands of hospitalizations and thousands of deaths. We're at a very low level right now. And he went on to say that we need to keep that level very low and and keep people vaccinated. That that there's, I mean, basically, he's he's saying we've got high levels of what you might call herd immunity, and we've got you know vaccination helping people out. And so, yeah, maybe it's not such a big deal anymore because so many people have immunity. At the same time, I personally, just speaking for myself, I am haunted by the author that we had on this program, what, maybe two months ago or so, who wrote the book about the flu pandemic that everybody says was the flu pandemic of 1918, 1919. Well, it turns out the flu pandemic lasted for three years. There was a fourth wave that happened in 1920, and more people died from that than died from the two previous ones. Well, that doesn't appear to be happening what's, you know, to be what's happening right now. People don't seem to be dying, although 
literally this morning on CNN, they had a medical authority on and he was he was saying, you know, we're, we're at tens of thousands of new infections every day and we are seeing hospital. We, in fact, there's been a 60% increase in new infections. And this is the infections that we know of because somebody got the PCR test, you know, got a swab shoved up to their brain. Um, this does not count the fact that President Biden has sent free millions of home test kits to people. And so you've got millions and millions of people who are getting a sore throat or they're coughing or they're feeling like crap and they're doing their own test. And they're not calling up the public health department and saying, hey, I'm positive. I thought you'd want to know. Not happening. So, you know, the 60,000 new infections a day that we're looking at are just the official numbers. It appears to me that we are in a wave right now. If the official numbers are up 60% over the past two weeks, we saw the headline in the Oregonian yesterday was that here in Oregon, we're up 50% over the previous two weeks. That's substantial. And the, what the guy on CNN this morning pointed out is that we are now starting to see a rise in hospitalizations. Now, this, the, 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 that's the bad news. The good news is, I suppose, that the rise in hospitalizations is almost exclusively occurring among people who are unvaccinated or uh, who were in such bad shape that the vaccine really didn't help them. They were, they, uh, you know, it couldn't take effect. They were on anti uh, uh, anti-immune or immune immunosuppressive drugs, or they are battling cancer, or they're taking steroids. Or, you know, one of these conditions that basically causes vaccines not to work the way that they're supposed to. So on the one hand, you've got uh, Dr. Fauci saying, yeah, everything's good, which uh, it has become kind of the official mantra of the administration now. And has been, the, of course, the official mantra of the Republican Party for two years. And on the other hand, Dr. Fauci was invited by ABC News to come to the White House Correspondents' Dinner. When Louise and I lived in Washington, D.C., uh, we were the guests of Ellen Ratner and Talk Radio News uh, uh, either two or three times to these uh, dinners, to the White House Correspondents' Dinners. They are a hoot. And in fact, we were in the room the night that uh, Donald Trump and uh, that, that President Obama just, you know, ridiculed Donald Trump. Um, I, we were just, you know, probably 50 feet away from Donald Trump as that, and, and from Barack Obama, for that matter, as that was happening. And then, of course, later, just hours after that, uh, Barack Obama went back to the White House Situation Room and oversaw the, the assassination of Osama bin Laden. I mean, it was a pretty big deal, which humiliated Donald Trump and I think propelled him in part to, to you know to, to challenge Democrat, to challenge Hillary Clinton for the White House, but in any case, Anthony Fauci has, has so the you know these White House correspondence dinners when they when they happen, and we haven't had one for two years because of coronavirus, when they happen they're 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 a big deal, and being invited by a major news organization like ABC to sit at their table, I mean that's, this is big deal stuff. And Fauci, who had just said the pandemic is over, said, I'm not going to the correspondence dinner. He said, I did an individual assessment of my own personal risk, and I don't think it's a good idea to go. I mean, I'm paraphrasing, but that the individual assessment of personal risk was is his that's his language. In other words, he thinks he might get coronavirus. He might get COVID. 
if he shows up at the correspondence dinner. He thinks that it might be a super spreader event. Well, if you're concerned that, you know, like the gridiron dinner was a couple of weeks ago, we've got all these, you know, uh, I mean, Nancy Pelosi, and now you've got the vice president has COVID. Um, again, that's the bad news. We're in this fourth wave. The good news is none of these people, I mean, seem to have gotten really seriously sick other than just, you know, having to quarantine for a couple of weeks. So how is the pandemic going where you live? I can, you know, I can tell you here in Portland increasingly, and I'm seeing this with friends, I'm seeing this with neighbors. Um, people are getting very laissez-faire about it, very laid back about it. And, oh yeah, okay, so I'll get sick, you know, and I'll be, you know, people are thinking of coronavirus, at least people who are double vaccinated and boosted are thinking of coronavirus like it's going to be like the bad flu, which may well be the case. But if it is the case, why is Anthony Fauci not saying, oh, yeah, sure, I'll go to the I'll go to the correspondence dinner and I'll probably get COVID and it won't be a big deal. Is it because he's in his 70s? Well, does that mean that all of us in our 70s or anybody who is over 65 should have a whole different set of standards? So anyway, I, I just wanted to share that with you and and uh, put it on the table as a as a point for conversation. My own person, I'll tell you how I feel about this. My own personal take on this is that I would prefer not to get COVID. I, I think that if I do get it, it's not going to be a big deal. I'm I'm I've been I've gotten both boosters because I'm over 65 and I got you know both of the original shots. Um, but. You know, I've known of people who got really, really sick from it, even though they were vaxxed and boosted. But I doubt it's going to kill me or disable me or cripple me, but I'd rather not get it. And so for the moment, I'm not going out because I see this wave happening. You know, Louise and I went to a restaurant a couple days ago that was entirely outdoors. We were able to sit outside. We were able to sit, uh, you know, away from uh, people. Uh, The servers wore masks. It was very respectful. And, you know, there's there's a number of restaurants here in Portland that are that are doing that. And that's comfortable for me. But eventually the time is going to come when we're going to have to creep out into the world and probably this summer. And we'll see how it shakes out. My my brother, who died a a month or so ago, uh, there's a service for him in August. And we're we're thinking, okay, are we going to go to Michigan for this? I mean, these are the the, the, reality kind of intervenes. So. We'll pick up your calls on that. Also, this uh, morning consult political Politico poll, if a candidate is accused of racism, 80% of Democrats say that person should be disqualified or would disqualify them for me. Only 38% of Republicans say that would disqualify for them for me. What does this mean? Yasha Monk was kind of minimizing it because he said, oh, it's just the accusations. I think it's more consequential. What say you? Jake in Las Vegas. Hey, Jake, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom, you might have touched on this before, but in 1905, the U.S. Supreme Court in Jacobson versus Massachusetts, upheld by a seven to two vote, compulsory vaccination laws intended to protect the public's health. Right, that was smallpox. Doesn't that set a precedent? Well, doesn't that set a precedent for uh, what's going on today? It does, and I'm, I'm guessing that that's why the uh, the mandatory, I don't recall if it was masks or vaccines, but maybe it was both. The, the, the Biden administration had this, you know, this mandatory program for 
people in certain industries and within the government, and it got struck down by a by a Trumpy judge, and it just got reinstated day before yesterday. Although I think that they've already it's already expired, so it never made its way to the Supreme Court. But that was the appellate court, and I'm guessing that they were using that case to justify it. Okay, so there's a possibility that it can go through then is that correct yeah although uh, you know i don't think the government is as interested now as they were then i think you know now we're, they're taking much more a laissez-faire approach to it saying basically okay if people who watch fox news want to go out and die that's fine sadly i mean that's that's what that's what it's come to jake because they've they've fought so aggressively but your point is spot on that this was this was decided in 1905 and frankly it was decided long before that when george washington now we weren't a country yet but George Washington made vaccination compulsory for the American Revolutionary Army. And uh, again, also about smallpox. So, uh, you know, spot on. Jake, thanks so much for the call. So COVID news here. This is just extraordinary. This is the first controlled investigation of COVID on humans. And it was, uh, it was just published last week in the journal Nature. And what they found, and this is where they purposely, intentionally infected people with COVID. Volunteers. These were young people. They were 18 to 36 years old. Um, so they weren't, you know, at, at, and they had no uh, comorbidities or uh, other conditions that would put them at risk. And they volunteered for this program. And what they found was a couple of things that I want to just share with you as data points. And then I'll get to the, to the next story that goes along with this. Number one, they found that one single airborne droplet that can be expelled by a person speaking in your presence, or obviously sneezing or coughing, but just one single airborne droplet getting into your nose, the nose is the principal point of entry for COVID, or your mouth if you're breathing through your mouth. One single droplet is all it takes to get you COVID, number one, which means that wear a mask whether you have it or whether you're afraid of getting it, number one. Number two, that viral shedding and transmissibility occur at really, really high levels, whether your symptoms are severe, whether your symptoms are mild, whether your symptoms are moderate, or whether you have no symptoms at all, but you are still infected. You're still releasing roughly the same number of viruses. The symptoms indicate how bad, how heavily, how strong your body is reacting to it, not how how, how many billions of viruses are in your body or trillions. It's at highest levels in the nose and throat. Once again, emphasize the need for a mask. And uh, virus was recoverable from the nose up to 10 days after inoculation on average. So fascinating, number one. And number two, this piece in the New York Times today, COVID and, di- and diabetes colliding in public health train Mac. 30 to 40% of all coronavirus deaths in the United States have occurred among people with diabetes. And it turns out that diabetes impairs the immune system. Now, most people who have type 2 diabetes also have other underlying conditions like high blood pressure or obesity. And And what they found when they looked at, you know, which are also problems for COVID, but it looks like it's the diabetes that is the thing that's driving it. And those conditions are driving the diabetes. Diabetes patients, hospitals, this is from the New York Times, with COVID spend more time in the ICU, more likely to be intubated, less likely to survive. 20% of hospitalized coronavirus patients with diabetes died within a month of admission. 
13% of all adults, 34 million Americans, are diabetic or already diagnosed. And then on top of this, we've got legislation to reduce the price of, di of diabetes medication, insulin, down to $35 a month maximum. It costs pennies to make. It can cost $1,000 a month or more right now because of price gouging. And who's blocking that? The Republicans. Doctors have also reported a sharp rise in, type, in young people being diagnosed with type 2 diabetes. And this seems to track the childhood obesity epidemic that we've got. 42% of adults with diabetes now, uh, excuse me, 42% of adults are now obese in America. And this puts them at risk for diabetes, which puts you at risk for COVID. So all reasons for us to figure out ways to, number one, treat diabetes effectively, number two, to avoid it happening, and number three, to you know, avoid COVID at all costs, diabetic or not. My op-ed for today over at HartmanReport.com is titled, Why Blue State Living Makes You Healthy, Wealthy, and Wise. And uh, it, it's very straightforward. I mean, if you're concerned about quality of life, about education, about living longer, about lower crime, move to a blue state. If you want to carry a gun in public, if you want to earn crap wages, if you don't care about access to health care or your kid's education, move to a red state. The only downside of this move to a blue state strategy is that you're still going to be supporting red states. You know, but still, the quality of life difference makes up for it. Uh, and blue states do heavily subsidize red states, as the uh, Associated Press fact check noted, quote, Mississippi received $2.13 for every tax dollar the state sent to Washington in 2015, according to the Rockefeller study. West Virginia received $2.07. Kentucky got $1.90, and South Carolina got $1.71. Meanwhile, New Jersey received $0.74 cents in federal spending. For every tax dollar that was spent to Washington, New York got 81 cents, Connecticut got 82 cents, and Massachusetts received 83 cents. Also, people in blue states live longer, in part because blue states have all expanded Medicaid to cover all of their citizens. There's nobody uninsured in blue states, or very, very few people. In red states, there are 12 red states that still have refused to expand Medicare, Medicaid and they account for the vast majority of all the uninsured and thus really sick people in the United States. If you're concerned about being murdered, it's also a good idea to avoid red states. The uh, corporate, you know, uh, centrist so-called third-way think tank noted last, just last month, quote, in 2020, per capita murder rates were 40% higher in states won by Donald Trump than those won by Joe Biden. Eight of the 10 states with the highest murder rates in 2020 voted for the Republican presidential nominee in every election this century. And by the way, it's also true of red cities. San Francisco and Jacksonville, Florida have about the same population, but Jacksonville with a Republican mayor has more murders than San Francisco with a Democratic mayor. And Nancy Pelosi's San Francisco, uh, the death rate, the, the homicide rate there is again, you know, about the same size city, is half that of House Republican leader Kevin McCarthy's Bakersfield, California. And again, Bakersfield overwhelmingly voted for Trump. Red states also have a serious disinformation problem. 
largely because of the anti-science rants and rhetoric that are coming from their local right-wing radio stations, their TV talk shows, their newspapers, and their politicians. Uh, there was an article in the Journal of the American Medical Association by Dr. Stephen Wolf. He said, quote, some elected officials made a political issue out of challenging scientific evidence, embracing dubious theories, and labeling public health safeguards as infringements on personal freedom. In other words, they politicized the pandemic, right? He notes that excess death rates in red states like Florida and Georgia ran 200 deaths per 100,000 people, while well-educated, successful blue state Massachusetts ran at a mere 50 deaths per people. Here's the actual quote, quote, red states that resisted public health protections experienced higher numbers of excess deaths during the Delta variant surge in the fall of 2021. Between August and December 2021, Florida experienced more than triple the number of excess deaths, almost 30,000, as New York, almost 9,000, despite both states having similar population counts, 21 versus 19 million people. You'd think the good citizens of Florida would be up in arms, particularly since the disability from COVID. I mean, if you, if you got 29,252 people dying from COVID in Florida, you probably got 10 or 20 times that many people disabled by COVID in Florida. And you'd think they'd be really upset about it, but with 1,500 right-wing radio stations favoring red states and a few hundred right-wing Christian stations that preach politics on, on uh, nonprofit Christian stations and Spanish language stations, now you've got Spanish language versions of Rush Limbaugh all over the country. The Republicans in the red states are like living in this little bubble and they just don't even know what's going on. They're just, you know, stuck with this impotent rage in their own poverty, their crumbling infrastructure, their lack of health care, and their lack of education. And this is all because red states have adopted Reagan's motto. The nine most terrifying words in the English language are, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. Right. I mean, this has always been the sales pitch that the billionaires in the Republican Party make to working class voters in red states. We're cowboys like you. We're rugged individualists. We don't want anybody to tell us how to do things, and we don't need anybody to do anything for us, is what these multimillionaires and billionaires in red states say. And, you know, the, the only thing weird about that is that people in red states are more than happy to cash their Social Security checks and use their Medicare and, and uh, drain the federal coffers at the expense of the blue states. It turns out that that whole rugged individualism thing was really just a con to get rid of unions and keep down taxes in red states on the rich people who live there. I mean, it was also also a racist dog whistle. You, those of you old enough to remember, remember when Ronald Reagan uh, made that comment about, you know, I, I realize that it really upsets you when you're standing in line at the supermarket to pay for your groceries and some young buck ahead of you is paying for his steak and champagne with food stamps. And we all know what he meant by young buck. Reagan was the red state's main salesman. He was a multimillionaire backed by billionaires. And so he could glibly talk about self-reliance and independence from government. He hadn't had to worry about a paycheck or a health care bill since the 1950s when his father-in-law got him a juicy gig with General Electric and, and in with the GOP. He was a hell of a salesman. But his followers, even though they hang on as true believers in the red states, are taking it on the chin while they're celebrating their book bans, their bathroom phobias, and their laws to prevent minorities from voting. Children in red states end up uneducated, 
poorly nourished, they have the highest childhood obesity rate in the country in the red states, and more likely to die from suicide and accidental gun discharges. So what do they have left to sell these guys in the red states? Well, Don Jr. and Marjorie Taylor Greene and the whole Trumpy bunch, their new sales pitch is time to own the libs. Right. And they do that by attacking racial and gender minorities and throwing out cult-based homophobic smears because that's all they've got left is hate. Nobody's believing their new idea that if we just cut taxes on rich people, they'll become job creators, don't you know? Nobody's buying that anymore. So you get, you know, and, 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 the, and the Republicans and their, their patrons, I mean, they've made billions through the, you know, the, for the NRA from, from selling millions of guns. They've run their pollu- profitable polluting industries for decades. And now renewable cheap, you know, power is cheaper and starting to replace it. They've stolen over $50 trillion from the bottom 90% of American voters, mostly in red states. And now even, you know, I mean, Mitt Romney is, is saying that young people's retirement benefits should be cut now. We should be cutting back Social Security right now. And Rick Scott, the second richest guy in Congress, says that, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's time to end Social Security, Medicare, and federal unemployment insurance and, and impose an income tax on people making $7.25 an hour. Honest to God, this is the new idea these guys have. Nobody's buying this. Everybody knows trickle-down doesn't work. We've had 40 years of it. We know that it's a con. So what do they have left? Racism. Hatred. I mean, seriously. Marjorie Taylor Greene, uh, a couple of days ago, you know, came out with this statement, you know, uh, basically calling Pete Buttigieg and his husband uh, predators, sexual predators. Why? Because they're gay. Oh, yeah, let's go after gays and lesbians now. This is, this is the new Republican thing. I mean, you know, in addition to the usual suspects, trans people and black people and Hispanic people and immigrants and um, religious minorities, owning the libs, lax gun and pollution laws, and pretending you're a rugged individual by not having health insurance, turns out it has a pretty high price. And, People living in red states experiencing more deaths, more suicides, more disease, more obesity, more addiction, and frankly, more ignorance, or more charitably, lack of education, is a real tragedy. But this is America. This is what's going on right now in America. And it's just, it's a red state tragedy. I mean, this 40-year experiment, Jefferson called the states the laboratories of democracy. Okay, we've had a 40-year experiment here. How's it working out for you? Now, I'm not really, I mean, it's tongue-in-cheek saying, you know, move to a blue state. We need good people in red states. And frankly, what they need to be doing is taking over the red states. But, wow, what a challenge. Nancy in Pocasset, Massachusetts. Hey, Nancy, what's up? Yes, hi, Tom. I just wanted to say that somebody's already said it, but... Um, COVID is definitely alive and well. Um, we we attended a function for my brother-in-law. He was the first gay person um, to the New York Appellate Court, and he mm-hmm. passed away last year. We had an unveiling ceremony of his portrait, and five of us from my part of the family went to the event. And um, out of us, three of us got uh, COVID. My brother and I were double 
vaccinated and were lucky enough we did not get it. It had been 12 days since we got the shot. My sister ended up getting it because she had only been three days, and my my brother-in-law has it as well, and the culprit, the one that betrayed us all, in my opinion, um, of course had it. But Mm. the PCR test, we we all took them, and out of them, um, you know, three of them were positive. Well, all of them were, well, let me put it this way, one showed positive, four showed negative. But my brother and sister-in-law... Well, my brother-in-law and sister, they, theirs ended up being um, positive because they did home tests. Yeah. So there are two PCR tests that aren't even recorded because they're doing them at home later on. Yeah, yeah, and that's so, my yeah. point. I, you know, when, there's, when they're saying, okay, here's, here, the numbers are up 60%, those are the official numbers, and they do not include the home right. tests. And so, I, you know, I, I'm yeah. with you. Nancy, thank you. Thanks for sharing that story. It's, it's uh, fascinating times we live in. We really do. Harvey in Minneapolis. Hey, Harvey, what's on your mind today? Hi, I, uh, I'm a first-time caller. Uh, well, thank Tom. you, Harvey. Um, uh, Dr. Fauci was on public radio this morning, and he was asked about the White House Correspondents' Dinner, why he wasn't going, and he gave three reasons. One is age because of lowered immune system. You might be at uh, But what's risk. his age? Isn't he just like 74, 75, something like that? He's in his 70s. I don't or know. Is he his, he, Sean says he's, in his, he's over 80. Really? Okay. That's possible. Yeah. Okay. Anyhow, keep going, Harvey. So he said, he said we have a lowered immune system that when right. you get over a certain age. And he said that uh, uh, if you have uh, health reasons uh, for, that you might be at risk, or you might bring it home to someone who is uh, at risk. And he, he mainly said because of his age, he decided yeah. that. Sean just checked. He's 81. So that, yeah. you know, I, I totally get it. But, you know, if you're going to have public health, it has to include everybody. It has to include people who are over 80. It has to include people who have you know medical conditions who are going through cancer treatments and things like that i mean essentially what he's saying is that he wouldn't fly i mean he hasn't come out and said this but i mean if he's not willing to expose himself at the correspondence dinner you know where else would he not expose himself what else would he not do and you know because of his age so there you've got a condition you've been listening to tom hartman for audio and video archives visit tomhartman.com 